Welcome to Clothes Horse, the podcast that still hasn't found the ideal sports bra. Please send your tips my way. I'm your host, Amanda. Today we're going to be getting really sporty, like super sporty spice, with our guest Megan, a designer and expert in the world of activewear. Maybe you're a yoga fiend. Maybe you have a Peloton. And if you do, I'm totally jealous. Or maybe you're just a marathon Netflixer. But chances are you have some activewear lurking somewhere in your closet. Or since it's quarantine, you're probably wearing some leggings right now. Pre-pandemic, which as soon as I say pre-pandemic, you know I'm about to throw some statistics at you, right? (laughs) Anyway, pre-pandemic, the U.S. was consuming more than a third of the activewear made worldwide each year. One country, one third of the activewear. I mean, that's pretty crazy. And keep in mind, this number doesn't include its cousin or evil twin sister, depends on how you look at it, athleisure which is a lot harder to measure because it's so ambiguous. It's neither active wear nor regular wear. I don't know. (laughs) Since active wear is such a big market, it's no wonder that tons of fast fashion brands have tried to get in on the action. Megan is going to explain why that's a bad idea and why true active wear is incredibly technical and thoughtfully designed and therefore much more expensive. Being active and feeling confident while you do it is so important. If there's anything that months of being trapped at home has taught me, it's that physical activity is so good for your mental health. But there are risks associated with working out. And no, not falling off your exercise bike or tripping over a tree root while you're running, although both of those things have happened to me and one resulted in an ankle brace for months. I'll let you guess which one. Actually, it's our clothing. Surprise, surprise. Like, come on, clothes. Can't we just get a break for a minute? Public health advocates, including Greenpeace and a variety of European regulatory bodies that oversee chemical safety, they have expressed concern about evidence from a series of studies that showed a possible link between activewear and health issues such as cancer, obesity, and developmental disabilities. The chemicals in question have also been linked to reproductive issues, neurological issues, and respiratory problems. Tons of research over the last decade has highlighted the potential risks of various chemicals used in activewear, primarily dyes, solvents, and polyfluorinated chemicals, also known as PFCs. And these make items water, grease, and stain-proof, which is important when you're sweating and you're outside and you're exposed to the elements. Now, before we continue, it's important to remember that a big portion of the clothing we wear is also treated with toxic chemicals and dyes. So maybe I haven't said that clearly enough in the past, but like dyes are bad news. Denim washing chemicals, bad news. Lots of other things that we're wearing, bad news. But active wear is of specific concern because sweating and friction help our body absorb these chemicals a lot faster. It makes sense, right? You're kind of like heating it up and then you're also degrading your skin a little bit. So yeah, I feel a little scared. Are you scared? 
All of this talk about toxic chemicals in activewear first emerged in 2014, after a Greenpeace study revealed that equipment, shoes, and apparel from Nike and Adidas, and worn by World Cup players, contained toxic chemicals. I mean, that was six years ago, and there's still so many stories all over the internet about this. Like, Google it. Everybody's writing a blog about it still, six years later, because it's scary, right? In the report... Greenpeace found PFCs, which have been linked to health issues ranging from low birth weight to prostate cancer, as well as high levels of phthalates, which we've talked about in the past. And that's a solvent linked to cancer and birth defects. And then another chemical, which I'm just going to be honest, I'm too frightened to pronounce, but I'll just tell you it, it degrades into hormone disrupting chemicals that persist in the environment. Now, before we all panic, scientists agree that probably there are no short-term effects of wearing clothes that contain these chemicals, but the long-term is unknown. Basically, like, you wear them once in a while here and there, you're probably okay. We don't know that for certain, but if you're wearing them every day and you're getting sweaty and you're really working out, well, that's a lot less known, right? There are questions like, could the toxins build up in the body? Could they continue to cause tiny, escalating physical damage? It's just hard to say because, to be honest, there hasn't been enough long-term study. So after the World Cup debacle, which once again was like six years ago, Greenpeace declared that Adidas and Nike were greenwashers because they feigned interest and commitment to sustainability, but then, you know, they used really hazardous chemicals to make clothes. And I agree, that's the kind of behavior we label greenwashing. Both brands were what some might call butthurt about this. Adidas worked with Greenpeace to phase out all of these toxic chemicals by the end of this year, so 2020. We'll have to check in in a few months to see if they're there. I mean, hopefully the pandemic isn't pushing that out. Now, some people say, and I'm not saying that they're right or wrong, but they say that Adidas was motivated by trying to defeat Nike in China, where, and I thought this was really interesting, the middle class is constantly growing and buying activewear, and they are much more concerned with the health impacts of fabrics that are treated with these potentially hazardous chemicals than we are. That's right. The Chinese are more interested than we are, and I think that's super interesting. And I also, I don't doubt that this is one part of Adidas' motivation, but also being called greenwashers could affect your business. When a business is as large as Adidas, even if only a couple people here and there stop buying from them over it, when we're talking about a whole world, we could be talking about you losing hundreds of millions of dollars in sales. So it is something for them to be mindful of. I mean, they should care about it anyway, but as we've discussed in the past, money is the real motivation in a lot of these businesses. And so they don't make those changes until there's actually some money on the line. Fortunately, thanks to Greenpeace's pressure, most of the major brands of activewear have made a lot of progress in detoxing their fabrics, but there's still a ways to go. Like, they're not there yet. Nike blames their lack of progress on other brands being unable to agree on an industry-wide way to decrease the use of these chemicals, and I'm sure that's somewhat true. It's a bummer that they were using them in the first place, but... It seems like Nike is saying like, hey, let's figure out a level that's acceptable and we can all adhere to it. I have a lot of feelings about that. So 
basically at this point, I would avoid a lot of the big activewear brands or at the very least do some due diligence and figure out what they are doing slash not doing. Good On You also has a great list of activewear brands that are doing things right, including everyone's favorite, Girlfriend Collective. I swear we talk about this brand in every episode. So there, if you have your clothes horse bingo card out, you can stamp that one right now. I'll share a link to the list in the show notes, but there's a lot of really great brands here and some of them might be new to you. I also think it's best to opt for Good On You's list for another reason. When we talk about the tens of billions of dollars worth of activewear being made every year, then we know a lot of clothes are being made. And that means a lot of workers are being impacted, both from regular exposure to, you know, toxic chemicals and the general exploitation of the garment industry, including low pay, long hours, and various other abuses. So it's imperative that we shift the industry into a better direction by supporting the brands that are doing things the right way, both environmentally and ethically. And as always, (laughs) we have to stop buying from the brands that are doing everything the wrong way. You know, and that includes selling us poisonous clothes and keeping workers in poverty. So as I always say, we don't give money to assholes, not us. We vote for good things and good practices with our money. Okay, well, let's get into our conversation with Megan. Today, I'm really excited to be talking with Megan, who is a friend of Celicia. If you all are a big fan of our off-price episodes, uh, Celicia connected me with Megan. And Megan's going to talk about something that is kind of super foreign to me, which is activewear. And it's so much more complicated than you might imagine. I I think that's probably the case with everything we've talked about so far. So Megan, why don't you tell us a little bit about how you got into activewear? Sure. Um, I always was interested in clothing growing up and loved wearing different things. And I also always played sports. I played soccer my whole life. I played soccer in high school and then in college. When I graduated, it was kind of these two things that came together that made sense. And activewear was really just starting to take off in the early 2000s. And also, you know, always growing up, I hated that soccer clothes for girls were just small men's sizes. Oh my God, So you right? roll your shorts. Yeah. yeah roll, roll your shorts and huge t-shirts. And like, you know, why didn't we get our own our own things that were designed just for us. So, so it kind of happened organically, but it was always a thing that like, you know, I wanted a way to express myself, you know, and feel cute, but like still athletic. And then my senior year in college, I wrote my senior paper on the history of the sports bra and had Brandy Chastain on the cover, which, you know, that moment where she ripped off her jersey when they won um, the World Cup and, she, you know, her sports bra to the world. Yeah, that's amazing. It is really uh, important to call out for the listeners that I mean, we kind of touched on this with other guests. When you're a designer, you often, and it's kind of similar for buying, you often end up sort of in like a path, like a really specific category, and like that's what you do. So you're yeah. rarely going to see someone who is a denim designer suddenly start doing activewear or t-shirts. You know, it's like very specific. Yeah, and it's kind of where, I mean, that's just so, sort of how I started off. And I did um, do some action sports and swimmer for a while too, which is related, but yeah, once you kind of set down that path, unless you're looking to make a big change, it kind of makes sense, you know, and then it's 
especially for me, basically when I started activewear was just kind of becoming a thing. And then it really blew up back, you know, in like 2007 and is a huge uh, in the market right now. Oh, it's so huge. It's funny when you're talking about how all the soccer and athletic clothes, like when we were kids and teenagers were terrible. Cause it's like, I mm-hmm. blocked that out. But as soon as you yeah. started talking about the shorts, it really took I roll I roll it like as many times as you possibly could because yeah. it was a, men, a men's small short. Yeah, they're always weird. They were like just at my knee or something. They were really yep. bizarre and like voluminous in a very, yeah. <laughs> very weird way, but like weird in the butt. Like just, yep. just a nightmare. So yeah, I guess like today's kids have a much better experience. They have a few more options out there, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, and, and like, you know, girl, like stuff designed specifically for them. Versus yeah, yeah. Just, just sizing down. Right, right, because you know bodies are different. Mm-hmm. Yep, and we're not just small men. <laughs> no, <laughs> definitely not. <laughs> so, as Megan mentioned, activewear is huge. Like it's just getting bigger and bigger with every passing year. So, in the United States, activewear specifically is massive. It's the largest market in the world for activewear, and it's a third of activewear sales worldwide. So we're we're a big part of buying all this activewear. We're all active, I guess. Um, the global activewear industry itself, though, is expected to reach $580 billion by 2024. And the U.S. share of that will be a, a little bit more than $200 billion. So not quite half, but we're, we're getting there. And women, we're, we're a big part of this. You know, we're 35% of all activewear sold, but... Actually, the industry expects that that's going to continue to grow because apparently people are still discovering yoga. (laughs) I thought everyone was doing yoga now, but maybe not. And so 2019 saw yoga wear sales almost double that of 2018. And, you know, these are all pre-COVID statistics. I think that probably this area is going to be even bigger because, you know, people are working from home and generally not leaving the house and activewear, even though it's very technical and we're going to get into that. For some people, there's not a lot of differentiation between activewear and athleisure. So they might be wearing a really nice pair of Lululemon leggings for a Zoom meeting. So part of the huge growth of activewear, though, has been that all of these fast fashion brands have been trying to get into the market too. And we're going to break down why that's a bad idea. But basically, the customer, it can be very disappointed because the quality and the utility are just not there, especially from a fabric perspective. And once again, we'll go into that more, but there's a lot of technical and research and development. All this stuff is going into making the best activewear. It's not just like leggings that you can throw on. And good activewear is actually really expensive. And there's there's a good reason why, but it's no surprise that people making more than $100,000 a year are the biggest consumers of activewear. I could unpack that in all kinds of ways about wealth disparity and how it's expensive to work out, kind of. Not even kind of, it just is. Um, Gen X spends the most money on activewear, followed by millennials. Not surprising to me either. And as I mentioned, this category keeps growing and growing. There are more than 3,000 brands selling activewear right now. And some of those are the standard sport athletic brands like Nike, yoga brands like Lululemon. But there's just a lot of rando fast fashion retailers and brands getting involved. Uh, go search yoga pants on Amazon, which I made the mistake of doing early in the pandemic. And there was some crazy bad stuff on there. There's also still so much more opportunity for this market, even if you take COVID off the table, because 
there's a lot of extended sizing that's still not being addressed. Like most sportswear brands totally neglect anyone larger than, say, a size extra large. The last thing I wanted to say before we jump into our conversation is activewear is clothes you actually sweat in and athleisure, which often gets roped into this and is totally different. Megan will be able to explain that to us more. Athleisure is like loungewear in like comfy hangout clothes, and it doesn't have really any technical qualities to it. Do you think I – would you say that's accurate, Megan? Like athleisure isn't like technical. It's just clothes that look athletic. <laughs> yes. I mean, I, I think there's different ways to describe it. You know, it could it could be sort of technical fabric, but really it's stuff that you're comfortable in, you know, maybe you're traveling in, you're, you know, you're wearing at home again, you know working from home. So as I've, I mentioned, active wear is a totally different breed of clothing. What are, what are the challenges to designing that? Like, is the process different than regular clothes? When you design active wear, like you tend to start and think about the consumer and the end use. In my career, I've designed for specific sports, say like running. So really you almost start and think thinking about like the utility first and then the the aesthetic later. So, you know, hmm. of course it's important. Everyone wants to look cute and feel, you know, uh, <laughs> you know that's that's very important, but also- um, Very. Yes, and people tend to forget it. You know, they don't want to actually think about the utility. They want it just to work. So it's my job to think about that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, things like think about the placement of, of pockets, you know, with run clothing where things might rubber chafe. So where that seam is placed is really important. You know, once you pass running over like five miles, like you're going to feel every seam. So it's really important as where Mm -hmm. that hits on the body. And then I, you know, I've also designed for competitive and Olympic athletes and that's a whole nother um, thing to think about. Like they have to withstand enormous amounts of sweat and uh, usually think about ventilation and certain colors you actually can't use because they show sweat. Like, certain turquoise colors, like no matter what you do, they show sweat, like they won't pass certain tests. So it's just, it's, it's just kind of, you have this sort of like toolkit of things you think about before you even start designing. Um, and then, you know, the job is to kind of take that utility and marry it with like an aesthetic and, and make someone feel, you know, good and, and inspired to work out. So you and I, when we were talking, like preparing for the episode, we talked about something that I was like, oh yeah, you're right. Like there is a lot of brand loyalty when it comes to activewear. And we're all mm-hmm. guilty of that. Like when you find the right sports bra or the right pair of leggings, you just yep. buy – that's what you buy from now on, right? So you kind of yep. only have one chance to audition for the customer and you got to like get it right from like yes. a utility. It's so important and and that's – you know, if if somebody comes and like buys a you know, sports bra from you and it doesn't work, like they're not going to go back. You know, totally. same with like, you know, they buy a <laughs> legging and, you know, you're, you're in a yoga class and it's falling down constantly and you're, you're picking it up. Like you're not going to go back to that brand. So it's really important to make sure that every, every piece of like clothing that's designed is going to work and, and be able to, again, like, so the consumer doesn't even really think about it. Like they just assume it's going to work. Mm-hmm. So if they're thinking about it, then it, you know, it's not a great design because it's not working. Yeah. I thought that was really interesting to think about the idea of like being aware of it, ruining it for you. Mm-hmm. Whereas like when you're wearing yep. like some fabulous normal outfit, like you want that constant awareness of it. <laughs> yes, definitely. Yeah. That's yeah. <laughs> okay. So it's, it's really complicated to make active wear. There's a lot of science involved. So Let's talk a little bit about all the testing and research and development, because that's one of the reasons, I mean, there's many, 
why good activewear costs more money. Yeah, I mean, it really starts with fabric. So, you know, there's long lead times for fabric. You need at least 12 months development for new fabric, plus a lot of yardage in order to, to test. So really, you know, anytime you're thinking about using a new fabric, you would create lots of yardage. You'd test all the fabric first. And again, that's why it's so expensive. So any of the big companies, they will have their own testing facilities that they have in-house, but smaller companies will have to go and outsource their fabric testing. And then say after you test all the fabric in like just fabric form, then you'd make up garments and start testing actual like the fabric in the product. So it can get, depending on if it's a totally new product, can get pretty extensive. Usually we would do like internal wear tests first, just kind of pass it around to people uh, in the company and, and get some feedback. And then once we collected that feedback, then we would have like usually like a set of athletes or ambassadors that we would use to, to test the product and give us feedback before we'd go to market with a new fabric or a new product. And this is especially important with sports bras. Like that is a huge, yeah, yeah. huge obviously like it's so important. So, um, you know, we would do extensive testing. Like it could take, you know, two years for a new sports bra to, to hit market. I mean, I feel like it should be like that with all bras. And I, when I buy a yes. bra, I can tell if they put effort into researching it. Like as soon as I put it on, I'm like, mm, this, this, they didn't know what they were doing. <laughs> My boobs are a weird no. shape or this is like these straps aren't wide enough to do their job. Or it would seem like to me, you can tell me I'm wrong if I'm wrong, that sports bras might be one of the hardest things to develop. Yes. I mean, I think in the activewear space, they're, they're really challenging. And I, I think we talked about this before, but like a, a good sports bra is really like a piece of equipment. It's not, it's beyond just like a, a you know, a piece of clothing. So yeah. it's, it's so important. Like it, you know, it has to, it's got a big job to do. And I mean, the whole history of sports bras is pretty amazing too. And how it like coincided with like the women's movement, because it really empowered women who previously couldn't work out, like work out and gave them the confidence to be able to do that. I mean, that's so cool. I hadn't even thought of that, but imagine trying to just wear a normal old bra to go for a run. Like you couldn't. No, unless you like, and that's why running for a long time running was really dominated by, you know, women who had smaller chest size. Mm Mm-hmm. But now it's, you know, really running such a great sport because it's it's one of the sports that you don't need actually anything. You you know, you just need a pair of shoes and, you know, a, a good sports bar and you can you can go. You don't need other equipment. So it seems, you know, as I, as I was telling you or saying earlier, all these fast fashion brands are trying to get in on activewear. Mm-hmm. Why is that a bad idea for them? <laughs> yes. So it's um, – It's a bad idea because, you know, fast fashion as a definition, they're, you know, they're trying to turn things quickly, follow trends. I mean, you're, you're looking at more like a six month to nine month lead time. So in that lead time, there's no way you're going to be able to test, like there's no way you're going to be able to test fabric. And then you certainly aren't going to be able to like product tests. So, you know, these fast fashion companies are really just looking to get on, you know, onto the trend. And there was a number of them that, you know, that have come and gone, um, that mm-hmm. that see you know and it is more of an athleisure perspective so if you if you know you want a pair of $20 leggings that are going to look cute and you wear a couple times um but don't expect that you you know you're gonna be able to wear that in a yoga class and feel confident that they're not going to fall down or you know you're not going to get a rip in the seam mm-hmm. um, or your butt is not going to be like shining yeah. through the fabric exactly they're, they're not going to be sheer when you when you do downward dog <laughs> which is it was uh, a huge thing so really I mean if you're chasing trends there's no way to to, to test, you know, how you'd want to test for things that are going to be performance. And then, you know, it could just be, you know, someone designing it who doesn't, doesn't have any experience with the fabrics. All these like high stretch fabrics act really different, differently than other fabrics. 
the certain factory bases, like you need all the right machinery, like flat lock machinery. And you also need workers that are trained on how to use the machinery and working with stretch fabrics and how you feed them through the machine is totally different than non-stretch. So when we were preparing for the episode, I told you, I mean, you and I both mm-hmm. have experience uh, in this idea of fast fashion trying to make activewear. Uh, and when I was at mm-hmm. Nasty Gal, it, you know, this was when like activewear and athleisure was like all anyone wanted to talk about. Like every industry article yep. was like, this is the future of fashion. Millennials don't wear real clothes, blah, blah, blah. You know, you've yep. seen it. And so it was like, well, we definitely need to make activewear. And I mean, at this point, I was like, okay, I'm not like an expert on activewear, but I'm a person who wears activewear. <laughs> so it's already seemed like a bad idea just knowing that there. I didn't think we were going to be able to hit the technical qualities of it, but it was like, no, don't worry about it. Uh, we, we're going to get the technical fabrics, but we're just going to have the regular tops and bottoms designers do the line, and then we're going to just use technical fabric, but sew it in our normal factories. And I, all I can say is I'm really relieved that it never came to fruition. <laughs> And the only reason it never came to fruition is that the fabrics were too expensive to hit our margin targets. Yeah. So really, what other brands are doing to to sell you a pair of $20 leggings ostensibly to work out in, I do – I mean, I see this. Like, I will say I see it on the Forever 21 website, for example. Like, they're they're definitely trying to market mm-hmm. as activewear. Uh if if they're if they're able to hit a twenty dollar price point on a pair of leggings that you're supposed to work out in, the fabric is going to be bad because those the right fabrics are so expensive comparatively. You know? No, de- definitely. Yeah, I mean, to hit a twenty dollar legging, you're they're looking at like a dollar a yard fabric, which isn't isn't going to be a performance. Or if, or if yeah. it does, it's going to be something that you know is like a finish that lasts like five washes. Right, right. And there's a pretty high chance that the person who is designing it also is not an activewear designer. Yep. That's another salary that drives up the cost of activewear. Mm-hmm. I-, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about wear testing. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about how that works. Like, do real athletes wear the stuff? Or like, how do you find the people who do it? Like, what do you ask them? So um, that's actually I, this is part of the job that I loved um, doing wear, wear testing. So de- depending on, you know, where I worked or, or what I w- product I was designing, some places we'd have actual like athletes test the product, which is really exciting and, and kind of really exciting to work with them and get their feedback on everything. Yeah. Like if I was designing for a specific for like a competition, you know, we would actually fit directly on the athletes. We would do a, a special like, you know, we'd start off with, say, our, our size small, but fit completely on the athlete. So it was like a, a custom product and then you know, get their immediate feedback, like about sweat, like, you know, what they, you know, athletes are very particular to what they want to wear, what they like, what they, you know, don't like. So that's, that's kind of one component, but then, you know, other say everyday, like commercial product, like we used to bring in like run crews. Um, we'd have a day that we'd have a bunch of prototype samples and just bring them in to kind of see what they liked. And, and the, the most interesting thing is just to kind of not say anything and just see what people gravitate to and pick, you know, pick up and like, and Mm -hmm. then, you know, we'd have them go out and, and actually go run in some of the product and give feedback. So as a designer, that's, that's really cool to see people, you know, wearing what you design and giving you real time feedback. And it makes you such a better designer to get that feedback versus just, you know, designing and having idea of what you think to get all that feedback from people who are actually using it and would want to wear it is, is really exciting and, and 
you know, has helped me create a better product. Have you ever done a wear task yes, where you, I mean, you, you of were course like, you're oh try my, new things. like something like, shocking happened with some of the bonding like, techniques, which is whoa, really, we really cool messed up together. There. Like anything that weird. be disastrous, like <laughs> split seams, um, unfortunately. Um, so that, that is like, there's a lot of testing mm-hmm. that goes into that. So, we, you know, I've definitely had things like that or, you know, trying a new fabric that, we, you know, we think is amazing. And then you put it in a garment and nobody likes it. It's, it's helped me be such a better designer to, to get all that feedback because, you know, touching a little a swatch of something, you think it's great or, you know, you have an idea that you think is amazing, but once you put it all together, it might not actually work. So um, to me, I, you can't really, you can't create great product without getting that feedback. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that goes back to the idea of why everyone should be wary of these like fast fashion brands yes. offering activewear because it, the R&D is not there for sure. So, okay, you can't talk about activewear without talking about athleisure and like how that has sort of changed the industry. What do you think of athleisure? What are your thoughts there? So, like I think we talked about this before. I hate that word. I haven't come up with a better word, <laughs> um, unfortunately. I hate it too. I think because it implies that there's still some sort of athletic mm-hmm. endeavor happening, but like rea- in reality, you're going to the grocery store or watching exactly. Netflix. Yes. I feel like it should be loungewear. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I, I don't hate it. Like, honestly, especially with, with COVID and everything, I, I love leggings. I wear them. You know, I have certain leggings I w- wear to work out and certain leggings I wear to, you know, everyday wear. And I, I love that people are being more comfortable and there's more options for people to be comfortable and still look put together. So, you know, it is it is still changing. It is almost this idea of, like, everyday wear and that, um, you know, the consumer – isn't getting dressed up anymore, especially millennials. And they expect more from their clothing. They want things to be comfortable. You know, they're not willing to be uncomfortable all day. The, actually, the best thing I think about it is like, you know, I remember, I think, you know, maybe when I first graduated school, like I had friends who had separate work, you know, a whole separate work closet, and then like their weekend everyday closet. And now those are really blending. So at the end of the day, that that means people have to buy less stuff, which is great. You know, you don't need separate uniforms for for separate things. Things are, are kind of blending into each other. And I, I've done some focus groups at places I worked. And uh, we did a, a focus group with a group out in San Francisco, which was really interesting. I think you mentioned before, you know, the the median income was like over 100K. <laughs> That's a whole other thing about how certain aspects of health and wellness are mm-hmm. so classist yes. and they're really only for very privileged people and that that could be a whole other podcast where all that we would do is talk about it definitely i mean you think if people are paying 30 dollars just for one class which you know it's crazy dude when i was living in la people were going to soul cycle which i'm very anti soul cycle for a multitude of reasons they're paying 50 dollars a class that is bonkers to me you know, I've, I've done SoulCycle before, but you get these people that are like, oh, we're congratulating them on their 200th class. And I'm like, do you know how much money, money that is? Oh, <laughs> I know. I know. I've heard about that too. I, I remember someone being like, I'm going to hit my 1000th class soon. Wow. And I was just like doing the math in my head. And I'm like, that's a down yeah, payment crazy. on a house, like a really nice house. So obviously the, mar- the market's really <laughs> big, but you know, we were talking to, you know, these, these people and they, they were like, you know, they wanted to wear their leggings to, you know, yoga class and then throw in a leather jacket and go out to brunch. So, um, it's just a different way of people thinking about clothing and styling. So, you know, there's, there's aspects of it that I I think makes sense, but it it is also confusing for the customer because there's not a differentiation. So, you know, if someone just sees a pair of leggings, they might think you could work out in it. And there is a difference. I think that's true. And I think, I mean, you know, I've told you how 
like I've gone to market and every brand or line is trying to add athleisure into their assortment, but they're not like being clear about the utility behind it, you know? And I, they're also making things that you like probably, it would probably be dangerous to work out in because there's so much like (laughs) things dangling off of it or draping or something. (laughs) This is something that has made me laugh so much during pandemic which is good because you need to laugh about something but yes definitely (laughs) right there have been I mean now we're like six months into this almost five four months kind of depends where you live right and how your state reacted but there have been so many analysts who have come and gone during this period with like really crazy future predictions you know uh like that people will never eat in a restaurant again that like everyone's going to cook all their own meals for the rest of their life like silly stuff like that but I also like the one that just doesn't go away is that we're all wearing athleisure for the rest of our lives. I know. I mean, it's, it's funny. It's because if people get used to wearing comfortable stuff all the time, are they going to want to go back and dress up? I mean, I think, I think there will be a little bit like once things, you know, eventually get more back to normal, there will maybe be a resurgence of people wanting to get dressed up again because they haven't for so long. So I, I think there still will be a place for, I don't think the whole fashion industry is going to go athleisure. I do think it's, it is now it's proven that it's going to stick around. It's not a trend. It's something that, you know, a shift in the way we're dressing, but um, I still think there's room for, for both. Yeah. I think, I think so too. After a certain point, you just want some variety. Oh yeah. I mean, the other day I was, I was going out to the store and I like got dressed. It was so exciting. Totally. I mean, I went to get a haircut yesterday, as I mentioned to you, it's like my first haircut in a year and I got decked out because I was like, I'm going somewhere. Yeah. No, it's <laughs> I like put on makeup and put on some real clothes. It was great. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you also have a baby. So you are like yeah. double in sweatpants right now. Yes. So it feels really good to, you know, leave the baby with my husband for a little bit and get dressed. <laughs> it sounds very luxurious. Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> you know, another thing that I think makes this even more confusing about like, is this athleisure or is this activewear? Is that all of the brands who make activewear are like also getting on the athleisure train? Yes. Yep. And it's it's like the, it, the world is getting flooded with athleisure now. Like it's almost like a new realm of fast fashion because how many sweatpants do you really need if you never go anywhere? Exactly. Yep. The question we're all asking ourselves right now. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it, the market just became so big that everyone really wanted a piece of it. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. But it's almost like, you know, the real performance brands, you almost wish that they would just stay true to performance. It's like everybody wants to do everything, essentially. Um, I know. I know. I feel like it's like I like it's like a cash grab. Yeah. I mean, I've been in those meetings where I've worked somewhere where like athleisure is not even a part of our brand DNA, but it's like something we want to talk about. Oh, exactly. Yeah. And even in rental, we were talking about adding it. And I was like, but why? Why would you rent leggings? I don't know. That's – yeah, no, that's – I've actually seen some of the rental companies that you can rent leggings. I think that's just – I don't know why you'd want to do that. I know. In fact, I would say now all of them do it. And I mean, it, I just think that's so strange. Like, it's just so close to your body. It's like, and like, I hope people aren't working out on them, but you know, who knows? <laughs> who knows? I mean, like, when, when I've had that conversation where like, I think renting leggings is gross mm-hmm. and someone like thinks I'm being crazy, I'm like, would you rent a pair of tights? It's the no. same thing. Would you, would you rent a bra? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> a world in which we're renting bras is like amazing to me yeah, no, but I... yeah would you rent socks like where's the line right exactly <laughs> you know like leggings get sweaty they get stretched out like based on where your your body and the tension points and stuff and also like yeah. 
a lot of people aren't wearing underwear with, with leggings and that's fine. I get it. We've had some conversations about that at some meetings I've been at, whether women are wearing underwear with leggings or not. Um, but no, I, I think, I think there is a certain line of things that are almost too, like, you know, a little too personal too. <laughs> yeah. They, yeah. They become totally. yours, you know? <laughs> right. Right. And so maybe you just like don't have a ton of leggings and you take really good care of them. So you don't need that constant variety of renting them. Yes. I mean, I think for a while, I mean, leggings were a huge trend and people were talking about it like, you know, is it going to last? And, um, you know, they're, they're just so comfortable. But, you know, for a while it was all like bright colored leggings and then printed leggings, mm-hmm. which it's, you know, great to have one or two of those. But at the end of the day, like you just want a good fitting pair of black leggings that you can wear with anything. It's true. You know, every time I'm like, I'm going to buy this crazy printed workout set like with the like a bra and the leggings, mm-hmm. I like never wear it. I wear the black leggings and the black sports bra with a t-shirt All the time. constantly. Yeah, because it's just – it's like you have to wear the two together. It's kind of a lot of look. It's just not as versatile. I don't know. Yeah. I, I I appreciate a really great print in activewear, but like I also – I do too, yeah. Can see the drawbacks to it. If you're trying to do more with less, you know? Yes. Mm-hmm. So – Something I ask every designer or every every guest on this episode who works in the garment industry, it, it, in, no matter what they do, how do you work as a designer to hit the cost targets that are being outlined by buying? Because those cost t- targets get more and more aggressive. I would expect actually in this post-COVID recession world, well, we're not even in post-COVID world yet. We're still in it, that costs are probably even more brutal to hit because everybody's trying to make the massive amount of margin to offset lost sales. Yep. It seems I know activewear is expensive and a place that you can't cut corners, right? So what do you do if you have to bring down the cost? So yeah, that's always the most challenging part of, you know, being a commercial designer. Um, you know, and sometimes can be discouraging, but uh, you know, designing activewear, you you can't cut corners if you're designing true performance in the with the fabric. So you really, the first important thing is to start out with a target fabric price. Uh, if, you know, if that's too high to start with, you're never going to hit the right margin. So usually I'd work with my merchandiser and my um, developer on like a target fabric price that I, that I could, you know, start with based on like the cost. And then, you know, depending what, at, like if it was for yoga or running, you know, I usually would have a set of non-negotiables when designing like a, a certain garment. Like if it's a run legging, it has to have a pocket. So it has to have a zip pocket. You already kind of have an idea of what that costs. So you, you know, you start off with, with those two things, and then go from there, depending on, mm-hmm. you know, what the, the target margin is, really decide how much you can design into it. And I always like to start off high with like the, you know, what I really want. And then like kind of knowing the back of my head, what I might compromise um, on. But again, it's all negotiation with, and that's why it's so important to have great relationships with your merchandiser and your developer and your tech designer. Cause sometimes as a designer, you're selling your, you know, you're really selling your product and it's, you know, trying to get everyone on board mm-hmm. with how amazing it is. So those relationships are super important to get people to buy in. You know, sometimes I'd be like, but this, this design is so amazing. We should charge five more dollars for it. Mm-hmm. That's what people probably don't really realize. It's all about this back and forth and, and how important those relationships are. And if you don't have a great relationship, it can be, really contentious. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's important to call out is that there's a lot of negotiation and partnership that mm-hmm. happens because there's like design and then there's like buying or merchandising and then the buyer or merchandiser has to deal with their planner and everybody is yeah. every day trying to work together to come up with a solution. It's not just like, I love it, buy 10,000 and then we move on. 
<laughs> no, that would be nice. But it, it's always um, it's always a back and forth, mm-hmm. and you know we would go through probably like usually two rounds of prototypes where we'd fit them, and we usually would have everyone in the fitting. So you'd have the designer who would kind of lead the fitting, but a tech designer, um, someone in buying and merchandising, um, and really it, it, it becomes a group decision. Yeah you know, the, the final product. Sometimes for the best and sometimes not, you know. I've talked to some other designers and the mm-hmm. thing they always come back to is like there's always too many cooks in the kitchen and I'm like, yeah. Of course. It's always hard. I feel the same way as a buyer where I'm like, oh, can we just decide? <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it's hard too, especially as a like designer, you, you know, you get attached to certain things. So I always like to be able to look at the, the prototypes the first time they come in myself before mm-hmm. like people start pulling them apart or deciding you know, take that off the back. But I found it's all about the relationships and, you know, nobody really tells you when you're in design school, but like really, you know, selling and presenting your product, which is so important. Yeah. You hit the nail on the head there that, I mean, no one's learning any of that who works in the fashion industry. No, you have to kind of figure it out. Yeah. And it's, it's so key to be able to like sell your position, you know, like spin, Mm -hmm. create a story basically that will appeal to the other people in the room. And it's a good skill to develop. It's hard to like teach it you know yeah it's it's well it's it's just it's just something that you don't really think about when you're like oh I'm just gonna design cool stuff (laughs) and it'll just be cool yeah (laughs) yeah you don't really think about that you have to tell people why it's so amazing and uh, you know unfortunately like a lot of us don't really necessarily learn that skill in school so it is something to figure out as you go along yeah well and definitely as women we're not like taught to like like be like here's our compelling argument you know so I think I think it's really cool I mean that's like kind of one of my favorite parts of the job is talking people into things (laughs) yeah it's something I actually grew grew to love like it's scary scary at first (laughs) but it it is kind of exciting to to almost figure out a way to like kind of get to a place where like what you what you really wanted at the end of the day like you know you end up negotiating in relationships with people and to see kind of your your original vision come to life which doesn't always happen yeah that's true too there's a lot of uh concession disappointment Mm -hmm. you know going back to the drawing board a lot yep yes so let's talk now something i hit on earlier is there still a lot of opportunity to offer active wear in in more sizes, right? And maybe not even just like larger sizes, also like, you know, petites and tall Mm -hmm. people. Most clothing that's out there assumes that we're all like about the same size and that's just not true. Have you had the opportunity to design into extended sizes anywhere you've worked? So unfortunately I have not. Um, It's something that we would talk about at many meetings, but again, it's, it requires like an investment. So, you know, if if you're... Mm -hmm going to move into extended sizing it's not just about like extending the grading or you know sizing up you have to actually refit the garment you know we usually would fit on a small most places I worked so once you get past like an extra large Mm -hmm, so if mm -hmm. you fit on the small and then you grade up accordingly so once you get past the extra large size you can't keep grading up you know you can't just keep making it wider right you have to start over you have to start you have to make a new pattern and restart so yeah it's a huge investment. And then you also need people who are experienced. Like I think now it's more commonplace and there's more people that are trained in it, but it, it definitely requires, you know, an, another level of expertise. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it was something that came up in tons of meetings, like we should be doing this, we should be doing this, but to again, start that, like, you know, developing a new grade that could take a year. Years. Yeah. Yeah. Especially if you want to like fit test it, you know, and see how people like it. Exactly. 
like you don't want to just come out you know come out with it and then it doesn't fit you know that's your kind of your first try i'm really happy to see that more brands are doing it and like you know some big brands and then some some smaller brands so i think i think it's important i mean essentially wellness and health and feeling good about yourself should be inclusive to anybody and we i think everyone knows realizes now like you don't have to be a certain size or or look to work out so, you know, knowing that like extended sizes is one big area of opportunity for the future of activewear, do you have other ideas of what you think could be next or could be a growth area for it? It's been interesting to kind of see how it's it's grown over the last um, 10 years. But, you know, I, I see this continuation of activewear and every like day wear will continue to blur, you know, more and more. I hope people are going to want to buy less and they're going to want, that's my hope. They're going to want to have clothing that can take them to different activities of the day. So there will be more performance fabrics used for everyday clothing. And then the other big hope Mm -hmm. that, you know, I hope as a designer that there are companies developing more sustainable and and bio, like they're experimenting with biomaterials. And the the cool thing about activewear is it it does usually lead the field with some of the new technology. I do hope as as a whole that like we can figure out a way to be more sustainable. I hope so too. I hope so too. And that's that's a good segue into talking about Lycra. Because <laughs> yes. the, the impression I get from the people I've talked to about fabrics and also from you is, is that unfortunately Lycra is kind of an essential ingredient. And I'll let you explain mm-hmm. why, but it's also a synthetic. It's not biodegradable. Yes. It yep. sheds microplastics. So tell us why is Lycra, which is spandex, right? It's the name brand. Why yeah. is that so important to activewear? So it, it's really what helps, you know, your tight fitting performance clothing keep its shape. It's what right. helps, <laughs> helps it like grow to fit you, you know, comfortably and then return to its, you know, shape. So right now there isn't really an alternative. There are some yarns that are like an alternative. Lycra actually holds water. So the more percentage of Lycra you have in a garment, it is going to, it is going to hold some more water. So there are some alternatives, but it is much harder to fit. Like I've done some leggings that um, have like a stretch yarn that isn't Lycra and it just, it is, becomes more complicated and they don't, it doesn't hold its shape as well. So still really like nylon Lycra is the best performing yeah. material for tight fitting bottoms and tops. But, you know, I think we talked about this a little bit too. Poly is like, is such a huge like material in activewear, but I personally, like, I, I don't like to wear like polyester shirts i think they're gross i think they smell they hold smells and you know they do with moisture but they're just gross and and i know the material is like really cheap material i always work out in my like nylon like leggings but i usually i like to wear like a a loose fitting like cotton tank top or t-shirt at the end of the day i like feeling like you know I, i wear natural material on top oh totally agree i feel like i mean i was telling you that i had i tried a polyester top for workout and it was. So gross. I, I felt like I was kind of suffocating in it. Mm-hmm. For one, I know that some of the allegedly like Cool Max and whatnot, like those things, are designed yeah. to make you feel cooler. But I feel like my skin's suffocating. Like I just, I don't like that. And the smell only intensifies. It's, it's so gross. Yeah. No, I think it's gross. It's poly- polyester's gross. You know. You mentioned to me, and I thought this was so crazy. It kind of blew my mind about wool being a natural performance material. <laughs> Yeah. So obviously, you know, there's companies like Smart Wool. Wool is a great natural performance material that helps, you know, moisture management. Obviously, it's going to be more for your, you know, winter time period. But the biggest downfall is the the cost. So that's why, like, everyone's not doing wool. Like running shirts, uh, we, you know, a lot of places I've worked, we've tried to incorporate wool. And at the end of the day, it always gets dropped because 
you know, still trying to sell like a hundred dollar long sleeve shirt is difficult. Right. And um, something that I just interviewed someone about sweaters and she was like, yeah, the reality is that Americans don't want to buy wool. They don't like it. They think they do. They don't. No, I mean, the, you know, you, also you're sacrificing hand feel. So it's a great material for performance, but you know, it's not going to be super soft mm-hmm. unless you blend it with something else. And then you, again, you're taking away the, the, the whole concept of why it's a great performance material. <laughs> yeah. 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 So we were at some place where we're like, oh, well, all right, we'll just do like 90 poly, 10% wool. I'm like, well, what's the point then? Yeah, why bother? Yeah. And you're just driving up the price. Mm-hmm. I get it. I mean, wool seems like this really great idea. And then like the reality that I've experienced as a buyer is that customers are so obsessed with hand feel. Yes. Yeah. Which I get it. We're like sensual beings. <laughs> but But it's like really impossible to sell anything that's remotely itchy or scratchy and not like soft. No, I mean, that's the first thing you, you know, you, you, you're in a store, which, you know, now a lot of people are buying stuff online, but you're in a store. The first thing you do is touch it and, and feel it. And it's that, like that immediate reaction is, is you makes you want to try it on. Yeah. Yeah. What about Cupro? Because I, I've seen that here and there. I'm not even 100% sure that I know what Cupro is. I think it's like a rayon. Yeah. It's like a rayon, um, which rayon has its own issues. It's, it's sort mm-hmm. of natural, but then also it, you know, there's, there's almost like a, a positive negative to kind of anything, but then it uses a ton of like resources and water to produce. Mm-hmm. But Cupro is something that like uh, Stella McCartney has used it in her um, activewear line with Adidas and it has a great hand feel and it is more sustainable in certain ways. I think it's better than polyester, but you know, not perfect, but there are more options out there and hopefully, you know, people are continuing to come up with even more ideas around what new materials we can use for fabrics that are going to be more sustainable. Yeah, it seems like, I mean, this is the story with every type of clothing we've discussed, Mm -hmm. that really what needs to happen is that people just need to buy less stuff and take care of it. Because there's no... There's no miracle fabric out there because even cotton is problematic. Mm-hmm. You know, anything in a large scale is bad, right? It's all about yes. moderation, I guess. So you mentioned something that because, you know, microplastics are something we talk about a lot on this podcast. And when we talk about Lycra and we talk about activewear, we're talking about a huge source of microplastics. And you brought up how Girlfriend Collective sells a microplastics filter that attaches to your washing machine and catches them catches the microfibers that is and I thought that was so interesting so I I did some looking around because I was like do we all need one of these like what's the deal so girlfriend collective is not the only place you can buy one of these and basically I mean I'm not um a washing machine technician so I'm gonna give you the like really basic observational (laughs) version of how it works you connect this it's sort of like you know, there's a hose that comes out of your washer. That's where all the water drains out. Well, that's like what washes away all the microplastics into our sewage system. So this, you connect the hose that comes out of your washer to that, to this microplastics filter, and then you connect that to uh, the drain out or other versions. You connect the filter directly to the washing machine, then the hose gets connected to that, and then that goes out into the pipe that leads out of your house. So that was my extremely technical version of it. <laughs> But uh, this can be great if you have a lot of activewear and it's like a regular mm-hmm. part of your life, which it seems like it is for most people now. It's pretty inexpensive. It's about 40 to 50 bucks. Uh, and you just empty it periodically. There are other versions on the market that come with filters that you every few months you pull out and you just dispose of and that catches everything. There are other ones where it just sort of collects in there and you clean it out. But once again, you're throwing it into the trash. So yes, 
microplastics are still existing, but they're staying out of the water supply. I, in my research of these microplastic filters, I read about a study of uh, human poop that found a lot of microplastics in human poop. Wow. Yeah, that's wow. so gross. And you, it got there because no, we <laughs> ate and drank it, right? Uh, wow. Yeah. And there, not only is it in our water supply that, like the water that we drink and cook with, but it's also been making its way into agriculture because that same water is being used to irrigate crops. So it's just plastics everywhere all the time, you know, and it's it's not just humans. It's affecting all of our pets, all the animals. Everybody, yeah. Yep. So it's pretty gross. Now, I understand that not everybody has a washing machine, right? Some people go to the laundromat or like if you rent, you might not be wanting to do some Frankenstein work on your rental washing machine. I rent, so I would be a little nervous about it. There are also these like balls that you put in the washing machine that catch the microfibers. And you just basically when they start to look dirty, you just take them out and you clean them off and put the microfibers that it caught in the trash. You don't wash it out in the sink because you're undoing all the work you did. And there's a couple different brands of this. One's called Catnax and another one is called Coraball. And they both catch about a quarter of the microfibers. So it's not perfect, but also a quarter of microfibers is still a lot. Like it's better than nothing. Of course, yeah. So that's just one if you just put one of these balls in your washer, but you could put in multiple and that would catch even more. I don't know if you'd ever reach 100%, but you could definitely cut down a lot. There's also a thing called Guppy Friend that is a bag that you put your workout clothes in to wash it, zip it up. And the bag catches all the microfibers. And so then when it starts to look kind of gross, you take that and you wipe it all off inside and out and throw away the schmutz that's on it, which is plastic. So there are options there. It's kind of exciting. I think that's great. I mean, I think it's it's great that people are looking, you know, if we haven't found a better material yet, then we're looking for other ways to make it better for the environment. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it just seems like Unfortunately, in 2020, synthetics are unavoidable for activewear. Mm-hmm. And I also get why they have to be a part of that and why – I mean, I was telling you that I decided to try to work out in cotton pants. I had these cotton pants from Muji. They were really nice, but uh, I had really disgusting sweat marks in class and I felt really – Yeah, unfortunately, it just it, – It looked like I peed my pants. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you can't get around that. Right, right. And they were like, you know, not like moving with my body in the same way. Like I I, I get it and I – I'm sure an all-cotton sports bra wouldn't even work, you know? Like, it just isn't possible. No, I mean, you wouldn't have the recovery in order to, like, you know, a sports bra needs to have, like, almost 18%, like, right in order to, like, support you and move with you but but keep everything in place, <laughs> which is very important. Very important. <laughs> yes. Okay, so we know now we're all going to have to buy Lycra activewear for the foreseeable future, and we know that we can, like, mitigate some of the microplastics by buying these filters. Do you have – any advice for extending the life of your workout clothes? Because we're seeing like, you just shouldn't be buying a ton. Like, so how do you make them last longer? So I think that the best way is really just to take care of your clothing. Like, you know, clothing should be something that, you know, you buy something because you love it and it, you know, makes you feel good. And, you know, really you should treat it, treat it well. Like, you know, you should machine wash cold line dry leggings. Leggings are almost like lingerie, like, you know, that you should 
treat it with treat it with care. So yes, hang all your leggings to dry. And I think that's really the most important thing with any, like clothing now. It's really buy things you love and then take care of them. Agreed. Agreed. Do you think it's okay to wash them in warm or hot water? Because like, you know, we're talking about killing some bacteria here, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I do. I mean, I, I, I line dry all my leggings, but I do throw them in with, with other things in the wash. So um, depending on the material, I mean, I think a lot of them will say machine wash cold, but, but I'm not like separate. I'm not necessarily separating all my wash. That's just too complicated. <laughs> oh right my now, God. So. Yeah, me too. I like our, I remember my mom separating our laundry by color and all of a sudden. Oh, I, I do like, not do Forget that. it. No. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 I ruined the, you know, a couple things, unfortunately, but um, <laughs> I forget to do that. But no, I, I don't do that. So I think the most important thing is, is not to, to dry your activewear because then it pills easily. And so, yeah, I, th- I think that's, that's the most important thing. For sure. So you brought up something else, which I thought was really interesting about designing for athletes for specific competitions um, and that the stuff only gets worn one time. Yes. So say like I've designed like product for for tennis before and, you know, we would we would make, say, 10 of the same outfits and it would only be worn for one of, of like one time. Cause that's how much, that's how much sweat. Oh really? So it's just like ruined. Yeah. Oh, yeah. so it just gets thrown out after that or do like collectors buy it? I hope that it doesn't get thrown out, but, um, but you would wear a, a new outfit for each competition. That's crazy. I mean, that's some sweat. Sweat that you can't even imagine. Yes. though I mean the, like the testing for competition product is, is at such a different level than, you know, every day like everyday uh, performance wear. I hope it doesn't get thrown out, but yeah, you would only wear it one time. Wow. Wow. And so like, are there any other special things you have to take into consideration when you're designing for like professional athletes in competition? I mean, the sweat for one. Sweat is a huge thing. Designing something that somebody's going to be wearing and, you know, be on TV, you have to think about think about where the logo's placed. Like that was a huge thing because you want your logo oh, to be yeah. shown on TV. So that was yeah. really important. And like a lot of um, sports competitions have certain like restrictions on where you can place logos. So that was always a really big thing. And then of course, like you don't want any kind of wardrobe malfunction or anything like that. So like <laughs> you would definitely like make sure that it's being worn to, to like work out and before you would, you know, you would have somebody wear it on TV in competition. Yeah, I bet. Especially when you were talking about gluing seams. That's mm-hmm. like something never even occurred to me happened. That sounds really scary. <laughs> <laughs> yes um bonding seams is like is great because like you you reduce the friction um it's like a totally flat seam but it is expensive process and the testing so every time you bond a seam together you have to use a different like glue and heat setting for any kind of different fabric that you put together so it's like you can't just you know design something and be like okay bond it like you have to say like even if the contents are slightly different it has a whole new like set of instructions for gluing it together. And if you're gluing like a nylon with a poly, you know, you really have to test that out and see what, what's going to work. Wow. That's so interesting. Yeah. It's like a totally different world. Like I said, it's totally different. Do you have anything else you'd like to add or say, or tell everyone about activewear? Like for me as a designer, it's, it's so exciting to, to see more people working out and kind of being into this lifestyle. You know, I'm interested to see where things go and if athleisure is here to stay and which I think I think it is, is the whole world going to be more casual or are people going to want to start to like dress up again? Yeah, I mean, I I don't know. You know, I think I thought that 
I mean, I think we all thought that this was all going to be over in a couple months. And I was like, I could see that being enough time for people to like get really into athleisure and never leave it. But now I wonder, I correlate this to when you have to wear maternity clothes (laughs) and like maternity jeans and like stretchy clothes all the time that once you are able to start wearing your regular clothes again, you're like, I never want to wear anything like that ever again. (laughs) Like I only, right. Right. And so I wonder if like this goes on long enough and we're all wearing sweatpants for eight months, a year, are we going to be like, I never want to see those again. Like, I'm so curious. I finally invested in a really nice pair of sweatpants. So I always spent money on leggings and workout stuff, but I, you know, I was like, you know what? I want something that looks good that I can wear, like wear out, but I'm comfortable. So, you know, I finally did it, which, you know, I always said, I, you know, I don't need to buy a really nice pair of sweatpants, but here I am. I have a really nice pair of sweatpants that I wear all the time. Where did you get them? I think I ordered them shop, from ShopBop, okay. but they're great. They're black and I'll wear them all the time. Are there any brands for activewear that you really love, that you would recommend, that you like what they're doing? So I like Girlfriend Collective. I think what they're doing with like their size inclusivity is really great. And I, I just like that they're like a, a smaller brand. As far as like athleisure wear, like, so it's also kind of blending athleisure with like loungewear and almost sleepwear. So Lunia is like a great sleepwear brand that they're out of San Francisco that I really like. And that is kind of creating like sleepwear that you could wear all day, which is, is also a thing, you know, like people are, you know, want to look cute in their bathrobe and uh, if they're hanging out at home. Totally. I mean, I, to be fair, I do live in Philadelphia where people wear like horrible fleece pajama pants 365 days a year, 24 hours a day. So mm-hmm. I see pajamas in public constantly <laughs> Pre, pre-COVID too. Yep. <laughs> My husband and I have been like, we want fancy bathrobes. Like we're like, is it time? Totally. Like I'm like, if I'm going to be at home, like, you know, I, I actually invested in like a nice sleep set too. Cause I'm like, I want to feel comfortable. And if you're waking up and you're not necessarily jumping into your work clothes right away, like, you know, why not feel comfortable like and but feel like you look put together yeah and feel confident I mean that's yeah. half, that's like half of the allure of getting dressed maybe even more I yeah. every morning make myself get up and get dressed even though I'm not going anywhere just because it makes me my brain feel like I'm at peak condition you know <laughs> well, I think it cho- totally changes like your mindset you know if you're if you're just waking up and you know even just like you know I tend to get in the shower every day which I don't necessarily need to do but um <laughs> It just makes you feel like you're starting your day. Totally. It does. It does. I recommend it to everybody. Don't let, don't let that stuff fall by the wayside. It's really bad for your mental health. Well, thank you so much, Megan, for joining us today and explaining activewear, the mysterious world of activewear. (laughs) Hey, it's me again. Thanks so much to Megan for taking the time to talk to me. I learned so much, and I hope you did too. So now I'm going to talk about two things, and they're mostly unrelated. I mean, probably completely unrelated, but I thought you might want to know about them. So the first thing is, dun-da-da-da, pilling. (laughs) I know, I know, it's really on your mind, right? Well, Megan and I talked about it a little bit in our conversation, and it kind of got in my head, and I was like, what the fuck is pilling? Can we just all talk about it now? Like, why does it happen? So don't worry. I did some deep Googling and I have all the answers for you. So yeah, pilling. They're those gross little nubs of fabric that, I mean, they just feel disgusting. It 
instantly makes a garment feel old and just like, meh. It neither feels good nor looks good. So it's just all bad. But you don't want to throw something out just because it's pilling. I mean, that, it's like you want to, but you know you shouldn't, right? And that's especially complicated because so many things become pilly right after you buy them. I swear we're living in an epidemic of pilling. And I dare you to find someone who says, I love pilly clothes. They're my favorite. What a great texture. Nope, not going to find them. When I was working in the clothing rental area, this was like the bane of my existence as a buyer. Could we pay someone to shave off the pills? Was it even possible? Or would we just have to damage out the garment? Because customers would complain like, hey, I got this dress and it was all pilly. And I get it. It makes you feel gross. And like I said, pilling is out of control. Probably right now, as I record this, someone is feeling sad about their pilly sweater, or another person is taking their brand new sweatpants out of the dryer and lamenting all the pills. Okay, so like what is pilling other than an aesthetic nightmare? Well, this and this kind of blew my mind. I did not know this is what pilling is. So pills appear on fabric when groups of short or broken fibers become tangled together in a tiny knot or ball. Dun dun, a pill. The pill forms due to like rubbing or abrasion during normal wear and use. And once again, I just want to reiterate this like kind of blew my mind that a pill is actually a tiny but very unadorable knot. Pills usually form in the areas of clothing or linens that experience the most friction in day-to-day use, and that makes sense. So we're talking like the part of the bed sheets where you always lay or under the arms of your shirt, the inner thighs and butt of your pants. But really, depending on the fabric, it can happen all over. It's hard to predict which fabrics will pill versus those that won't. But there are some fabrics that are way more prone to it. Like knitted fabrics are the number one culprit. So we're talking like tees and sweatpants, hoodies, you know, you know. They pill more than woven fabrics because the threads are looser. Meanwhile, fabrics made of long fibers like silk and linen will pill less because the fibers are longer, so they're not breaking as easily. Whereas like wool, cotton, polyester, and other synthetic threads tend to be shorter and then therefore they're more prone to breaking, so they pill more. And blends are even more prone to pilling because inevitably, One fiber in the blend is stronger than the other, so the weaker fiber will break and not around the stronger fiber, and then a pill is formed. I mean, isn't that romantic? It makes sense that we're in this epidemic of pilling because we know that brands are relying more and more on these cheaper, shorter fiber fabrics and blends, you know, because they're trying to keep costs down. Another thing... Once the pill is formed, it becomes a magnet for all the other threads and fibers swirling around in the washing machine and dryer. And so that's why black clothes tend to get white fuzzy pills. It's the fibers from the other clothes in the load. So how can you prevent these? Well, there are things you can do. Like you're not powerless here. First, use the gentle cycle or hand wash as much as possible, especially if we're talking about clothes that are these fibers that are more prone to pilling in the first place. Basically, the agitation and spinning in the washing machine can break the fibers. Makes sense. It's kind of crazy 
when you stand next to the washing machine to hear what's happening in there. <laughs> okay, next, and this one's really easy, just wash your clothes inside out because then you can protect the outside from rubbing up against other things and pilling. Why didn't somebody tell me this before? This would have changed my life. Next, and I'm super guilty of this one. I'm going to try to work on it. Don't overload the washer. And you want to wash delicate items separately from bulky, sturdy items. So like don't mix jeans with tees or, you know, you're going to get a lot more friction. It goes without saying that you should use a gentle detergent and you should avoid bleach and those like color safe bleach additives. I've also read that you should choose a laundry detergent that contains the enzyme cellulase because that enzyme specifically helps break down cotton pills and remove them. So I'm definitely going to start reading all my bottles to find that. I think that's amazing. Also, I know that this is hard, especially since we're coming up on fall and winter, but you should try your hardest to avoid the dryer. I hang as many of my clothes as possible in the shower, over the stair rail, on my, the end of my bed, wherever. <laughs> also, you can choose better fabrics. We're all working on that anyway. But you definitely want to avoid fabric blends, especially those that mix a natural fiber with a synthetic fiber because they're way more prone to breaking and pilling. If you want to be super pill adverse, like I don't ever want to own another article of clothing that pills again, you'll want to minimize the knit portion of your closet and focus on wovens. But once again, I mean, I don't think you have to give up sweatpants. Just be gentle with them. And I, I know it seems counterintuitive and kind of not in line with anything we think normally, but you should be just as gentle with your sweatpants as you are with your favorite dress. That concludes my TED Talk about pilling. Now, I'm going to talk to you about plastic. I'm going to start this by saying that way back in 2000, my daughter's father declared that recycling was both a sham and a scam. And I was like mortified because recycling was everything that good, decent people did. You know, it's like our civic duty. I thought at the time that maybe he was referring to the weird blue plastic bags we had to buy for recycling in Chicago. By the way, if you live in Chicago, let me know if you guys are still doing that. But now I don't know. Like maybe he wasn't upset about these blue bags. Honestly, I wish I could hold a seance or hire a medium and ask him what he meant. Like did he know the future? I mean, I have other things to ask him too, but I need to know why he thought recycling was a scam. Because <laughs> I guess it, spoiler alert, I guess it turns out recycling is kind of a scam. Are you ready? So I read an amazing article from NPR this weekend, and I'm going to share it in the show notes. Please, please, please give it a read. I'm going to call out a few of the key points now, but it's so important for you to read. I mean, you're going to be pissed off when you read it, but it's going to be good for you. So first off, and I have to preface this by saying this has kind of been known, kind of not known for a long time, but a lot of the plastic we put in the recycling bin each week is not recycled. And I knew that. There was a rash of articles going around Portland a couple years ago about that. I've been hearing for years about how we used to send all of our plastic recycling to China, but we were doing such a bad job of it by sending contaminated items or not properly sorting that China just stopped accepting it. And so for the most part since then, cities have been very quietly burning or burying it for the last few years. It's important now to take a moment to remind ourselves that plastic is made of oil. 
And the biggest makers and sellers of plastic are, dun dun the oil and gas industry. Man, you know this, this is going to take a dark turn when we have to bring up the oil and gas industry, don't you? Well, the oil and gas industry has always known that plastic wasn't super recyclable, especially not on a large scale, like the way we're using plastic right now. In fact, one industry insider wrote in a 1974 speech, there is serious doubt that recycling plastic can ever be made viable on an, on an economic basis. And this insider is right, because for one, recycling plastic is always way more expensive than making brand new virgin plastic. And with each recycling, plastic becomes less durable and useful, often only able to be recycled one or two times. Crazy. Definitely not the picture that I had in my mind, and I'm sure you didn't either. The technology just isn't there, and it's really expensive. Like the bad plastic recycling technology that we have now is super expensive. So the industry knew this, but they continue to push this like facade of recycling in order to sell more plastic. Here's a quote from the article. If the public thinks that recycling is working, then they are not going to be as concerned about the environment. And the person who said this was Larry Thomas. He was the former president of the Society of the Plastics Industry, which today is known as the Plastics Industry Association. And it's one of the plastic industry's most powerful trade groups. For decades, we have been told to recycle. In the 90s, television was filled with pro-recycling commercials paid for by the oil industry, including Exxon, Chevron, DuPont, and Dow. And all of these companies had a great interest in selling more plastic. Meanwhile, in all of these decades, only 10% of plastic has ever been recycled. 10%. So this faux plastic recycling movement began in the 80s as the news began showing image after image of landfills overflowing with plastic waste. The oil and plastic industry had a huge PR problem here, right? They were getting a bad image. They were just making all this product that just sat in the landfills. Do you remember the garbage barge? You kind of have to be a little on the older side to remember the garbage barge for news. But this was like the era of this barge that was just rolling around filled with garbage. And a lot of it was plastic. It was a bad look for the industry. And so you know what? The idea of plastic recycling was born. Now, prior to that, we recycled aluminum and glass. Not necessarily on a wide basis, but it was out there. Oil and plastics executives lobbied almost 40 states to mandate that the recycling symbols and codes appear on all plastics. So you know the codes that we're familiar with now. Even if there was no way to economically or practically recycle it, because once again, plastic degrades really fast and... There are so many types of plastic in use, and they all require different types of recycling. There's no way that one facility could do it. And just as a reminder, it's so expensive. I can't stop mentioning that because we know, I mean, we know money motivates, right? Basically, the little numbers slash recycling symbols that we see on our yogurt containers and shampoo bottles, they mean nothing. They're just really effective PR. And you know what? Good old Larry Thomas was right. Like 
we felt better about the environment because we all thought we were doing all this great recycling, right? We judged people who weren't sorting their recycling properly. Are you angry yet? Because there's more. There have been no advances in plastic recycling technology in decades. Like, somewhere along the way, we could have narrowed the kinds of plastics we used to make it more simple, or we could have perfected the recycling process to prevent it from degrading, or maybe, maybe we could have just found alternatives to plastic. Instead, we have seen more and more products switch to plastic bottles. Like, the example I always think of is ketchup. When I was a kid, it came in a glass bottle, and there were all of these theories about how you could hit it in different spots to make the ketchup come out more effectively, because it was actually super frustrating. Now it's in a plastic squeeze bottle, and you know what? So were all the other condiments, but they were all in glass containers when I was a kid. So why hasn't this changed? Why haven't we made plastic recycling better or shifted away from plastics instead of like totally just leaning into it? Well, the oil industry makes more than $400 billion each year selling plastic, and they have no incentive to change. Now, I know this is a podcast about clothing, but it's also about conscious consumerism. So I implore you to read this article. Once again, it's going to be in the show notes. We have to make some personal changes by buying less stuff that comes in plastic packaging, by buying in bulk or paper packaging, of switching from a plastic bottle of body wash to soap that comes in a paper sleeve or with no packaging at all. I mean, it's an endless list and I know I've been working on it for the past few years and now I have to work even harder. And I urge you to check out the hashtag zero waste people of Instagram for more inspiration and guidance. Like we can do this guys. But I also want you to be furious. I want you to tell everyone you know. I want you to write angry letters and tweets. I don't want this to go away. I don't have a solution for it now, but I know spreading the word is step one because you know, Not everybody listens to NPR or reads the NPR blog or is as nerdy as I am. If enough people know and enough people care, and they're going to care when we tell them, we can force a change via government oversight and pressure on corporations. We can change our buying habits and vote with our dollars too. And if we're all doing that, that's going to make a big difference. This is going to be a really tough battle, possibly even harder than changing fast fashion, which is also really epic. (laughs) But I do believe that we can make change happen, and it's all about educating and supporting one another. I know we can do this. Thanks for listening to another episode of Close Horse. If you like what you're hearing, please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. I mean... Let's spread the word via algorithms. And thank you to everyone who has shared our content on Instagram. It makes me feel all the feelings. (laughs) I'm still working on the episode about retail workers, so please send me your stories via email at closehorsepodcast at gmail.com or via Instagram where you'll find us at closehorsepodcast. I know, pretty shocking. (laughs) 
Don't forget to check out my other podcast, The Department, which I co-host with my friend Kim. This week, we're talking about normalizing natural human things like puberty and body hair. So check it out. Thanks, as always, to Dustin Travis White for providing our music and audio support. It turns out that he's also good at wiring light fixtures, which is super lucky because our new place in Lancaster County has, like, very few lights. Very, very few lights. So what a gem. I'm lucky to have him. Bye. Bye.